Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today we're talking with Kyle Clark, a well-known member of Colorado's news media and a community champion for the philanthropic sector. Kyle is an anchor for Nine News, who is also the managing editor of Next with Kyle Clark. Next has been Denver's most watched newscast since 2018, and Kyle himself has been honored with more than 20 Emmy Awards. Kyle also created Word of Thanks, a weekly micro-giving campaign supporting small to mid-sized nonprofits in Colorado. Word of Thanks rallies Next viewers to pool their $5 donations to make an impact for a single charity each week, having raised more than $11 million. Kyle, it's great to see you and welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories. It is an absolute honor to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, as we typically do, we want to start with some personal questions about your own leadership story before we learn what you're up to now. So let's dive in. I understand you grew up on the East Coast and are originally from New York. Share with us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing. What were some of your favorite hobbies and things to do? So I grew up in a town called Lyons, just like Lyons, Colorado, and roughly the same size, so about 3,000 people. So about the size of like a Bennett or a Burlington or a Yuma or a Ray. It was a farm town in Western New York. And I'm the son of two educators in the public school system uh, in the town where I grew up. And I grew up surrounded by nature and by stories mm. and storytellers. I had a childhood that was lived outside doing all of the little things that kids do outside, building forts in the woods and just exploring and and being left to my own devices outdoors. And that's something that really sticks in my mind about, about growing up and also just being surrounded constantly by learning and learners, right? Mm. Uh, my parents being teachers instilled the idea that learning is an adventure and then storytelling is just an opportunity to share those learnings with somebody else, right? And to to tell somebody a story that takes them someplace. I think about the times that we would gather on my grandfather's farm, and this is a place he owned a TV. I never saw it on, so I'm not sure that it worked, but it was ancient. <laughs> but this was a place where all of the stories were, were spoken um, among family members, and people would gather around all kinds of different life experiences. My grandfather was a farmer and a carpenter. So you got my dad and my mom who are, who are teachers and an uncle who worked in the prison system and a guy who was a truck driver and a homemaker, all these people sitting around just telling stories for hours at a time about things that they had seen or heard or experienced together and apart. And I just remember sitting there as a kid in awe of the ability of people to tell a story that moved somebody. And I loved learning those stories as a kid. And I think that may be why I gravitated toward telling stories when I grew up. Oh, I love that. The origin story. When you think about your childhood too, and other maybe other than your parents, who were some of your mentors and role models and why? I have to mention my parents for the reason that they modeled from a very early time in my life, the importance of being of service to others. Mm -hmm. They lived, continue to live, now in retirement, lives of service. 
And I, I think they're more busy in service now that they are retired than they were before. But it's that yeah. same threat, which is find something to do that you can get paid for that's of service to the community. And when your hours are done doing that, find other ways to be of service to the community. And that's the point. If the question is, what's the point in life? The point is, how can you be of service to other people? And that's what they most of all instilled in me. And then I would mention another early mentor, a guy named Tim Castleman. Uh, when I was 15, I kept telling my parents, I want to learn how radio works. I want to go work at a radio station. And they got sick of me saying it. Eventually, my mom said, great, uh, you're going to call the local radio stations until one of them says that you can go in there and do something for them. And you can't leave the house or go anywhere else and do anything else until you do that. <laughs> so I called a local ag radio station, 5,000 watt radio station, you know, where they'd read like the commodities prices in the news in the morning. And then they'd have talk on during the day. And at night they do high school basketball and football. Mm. And I called that AM station and I said, hey, I want to learn how radio works. And they said, come on over. And I went over and I met some wonderful folks who very quickly were like, would you like a job? And it, it was running the commercials during baseball games. And then there was a guy named Kim, Tim Castleman, who for years had done high school basketball and football on the radio. He was a probation officer by trade, but he did this during the evenings. Mm. He was so good at it. And he knew that I was interested in it and that I used to go into the stands and pretend with a tape recorder that I was calling the games. And I was completely not ready to actually do it in front of an audience. But Tim said, let's do it anyway. And he gave me a shot and he taught me how to do it. And he took me around and people were like, who's the kid? And he's like, he's my new broadcast partner. How and cool. he invited me into his world and he gave me the opportunity to do something that I was not ready to do, but he got me there. Wow. How old were you when that was? 15, 16. Oh, man. Is that what you majored in in college? You went to Ithaca College, Correct. right? And that was sort of this motivation of storytelling that in and that's why you landed there. Yeah, and I think kind of maybe a, maybe a cross connect with the idea of community service is that if you're able to be somewhere and tell somebody what's happening, that's one way to be of service to the community. Mm -hmm. And you think about a high school basketball game. All right, there might be a couple hundred people in the stands. You know, maybe a thousand if it's the biggest game of the year. But for you know number 15's grandfather who's at home because of his health and he can't watch his grandson play. The only reason that he is able to experience it is because we're sitting there talking about it. And that has that has immense value to that man and to that family. And I just think that's the value in journalism. Anytime you can be somewhere, see something, tell people about something happening that other people are not necessarily talking about, telling the whole story about, that's that's of huge value. So that drew me first to the world of sports and then kind of into news of just how can I how can I see things and tell people the truth about what's going on, especially when there's an opportunity to maybe be the only person who's doing it. That's powerful. And so you start your broadcast career in New York, right? Yep. And then how'd you get to Denver? So my senior year in college, I took classes a couple days a week and then worked five days a week uh, down the road at a TV station. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of eager to just get out and go, you know. And then I went and I worked a couple of years in my hometown with the folks that I had grown up watching on TV. Oh, wow. Oh, every single young journalist, if you have the opportunity to work in your hometown, you absolutely should because you very quickly understand just how important of a service it is to the community and and how interwoven great journalism can be in a community. So I worked two years in Rochester and then I wasn't really sure where my path was going to go, whether I wanted to be in my hometown for the rest of my life, but I knew that I at least wanted to try something else. Mm -hmm. And I very much wanted to learn from the best. And the best photojournalists in America were and still are 
at Nine News in Denver and reached out to the folks here and came out and started here close to 17 years ago. Wow. And decided to stay. Well, we're glad for that. Um, In most professions, you have a welcome to the real world type of moment where we realize how much our work matters and how it impacts people's lives. And you started talking about that a little bit. But when was that moment for you? I feel like it was a cascade of moments. I think it starts with that idea of being able to transport somebody inside a high school gym or to a, a cold football field in you know November to tell them about a, a football game where they couldn't otherwise go. I think that that's one of those moments. I think in my first television job, I had the opportunity to approach an elected official, a city councilman, and ask him why he wasn't paying his taxes. And um, I'm sure this is a family show. So he responded with, go F yourself. <laughs> um, but I realized in that moment, I was I was the one who was in a position to advocate for the community, for his constituents, uh, and to and to ask that question in the same way that I was the one in the position to talk about the basketball game. And then coming to Denver, one of those moments really hit me. There were a number of service members of color who were posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor when President Obama reviewed cases where service members had received lesser honors and were overlooked due to discrimination. And when the list of those honorees came out, there was one of them, they would list, you know, birthplace, hometown, birthplace, hometown on each of these these men. They were all men. And for one, it was uh, birthplace, Colorado, question mark, hometown, blank. It's the only one like that in the whole thing. I was so intrigued by this. And it was uh, Corporal Joe Baldonado who served in Korea. We were so intrigued by his story. And I looked around, I'm thinking, who here knows him? Nobody knows him. VFW doesn't know him. Legion doesn't know him. Nobody here knows this guy. So through the White House, we ended up getting in touch with his brother, Charlie, who lived out in California and just said, I'm sorry, is, is your brother from Colorado? You know, um, And Charlie was astonished because he felt like until that review by the White House that nobody remembered his brother. They had no ties to Colorado because of the fact that they were migrant farmers. They were migrant workers mm-hmm. and they traveled state to state. And he said, I believe that my brother was born in Colorado. He says, I believe that I was born in Colorado. But then we were in Wyoming and Arizona and Utah and ended up in California. And his brother shipped off to Korea from California with no hometown. He had never had a hometown his entire life. And I said, you know, is is there a VFW post or Legion post that, that your brother was attached to or that honors him or anything? And he said, no, there's not. So this honor, the Medal of Honor at the White House, was going to be the first time in a generation that anybody else had said this guy's name or recognized that he died a hero in Korea, um, didn't return home, and his body didn't return home. And we asked his brother, Charlie, could we remember him and tell Coloradans about him? And How would you feel about that? And, and he said that it would mean the world. So we were able to travel with Charlie to the White House, to the Korean Memorial, where the throngs of tourists, visitors from South Korea come up and embrace him because he's a man of that age. And he's mm-hmm. telling them, it wasn't me, it was my brother, it wasn't me, it was my brother. And to, to allow Joe Baldonado to be remembered as he should have been, uh, to see his name put on the Colorado Freedom Memorial in Aurora with all of the other Coloradans who have given their lives in service to the country, to be able to remember him in the way that he should be remembered and to give his family the respect that they should have. And we were the ones in a position to do it. 
That's a very long way to answer your question. But that was that's what it's all about. It's a great story. Great story. At Betcher, we talk about how leadership is an activity, not necessarily a title, and it can be risky. It was absolutely risky for Nine News to experiment with a new evening format next in 2016, which, if I understand, was your concept along with a colleague, right, that pitched it to the network executives. The show is awesome. Thank you. (laughs) It, It provides unique, honest perspective on what's happening in Colorado, offering analysis and commentary beyond sound bites. And I think it wasn't an immediate ratings winner. In fact, it was not. (laughs) It was the opposite. Well, but the show's longevity and success is is now the most locally watched newscast and its impact are clear. So I want to hear the story about Next. What has Next taught you about community journalism? I think more than anything, it's Next has reinforced that our community does and should expect more out of local television. They should expect more than they've been given, which is not to say that there haven't been phenomenal journalists working in television over the years in Colorado and some great work done. But on a day-by-day basis, what are we telling people about their community? What are we telling people about their neighbors? I think that those of us who work in broadcast journalism have to reckon with the fact that for a lot of years, a lot of what our industry did was not only not helpful to the community, but was actively corrosive to the bonds of community. It taught people to fear their neighbors. Mm. It taught people to fear those who are who are perceived as as doing wrong or scary or others. I mean, we wouldn't I mean, we'd make people scared if what was in their fridge, you know, like something in your fridge may kill you, you know, the film at 10, you know, it's like, well, no, it's gonna kill me. I want to know now. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But this idea that like people should watch you out of fear because you on TV will protect them from the other out there. And then we wonder why people live in self-segregated communities based on their ideologies and and we've separated. Like We have to accept some responsibility for what we as journalists, and I will just say particularly in local TV news, did to reinforce that fear factor in our communities. And I think there's a different way to tell people what's going on that is not the litany of tragedy model. Mm-hmm. The sit down and let me tell you the 10 worst things that happened today than weather and sports. That's that's a model that we can put in the past. It doesn't serve the community. And I think what, what Next has taught me is that there is an audience for a type of journalism and a type of community connection that goes beyond journalism. Not everything that we do on Next is journalism. When somebody says, that's not journalism, okay. I, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Like, like I'm a journalist, but I'm also a community member and I'm a citizen and I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm a lot of things in addition to being a journalist. And the idea that you, you turn on a television show and you'd get to see, you know, one tenth of what somebody is doesn't feel like an authentic conversation. So I think next may it maybe has, has opened the aperture a little bit. I think so too. In the commentary segments that you you're trying to bridge partisan divides and emphasize shared values and more focus on civics, um, it's really appreciated. Uh, could you share more about some of the challenges and maybe opportunities of bringing Coloradans together around those principles of truth and fairness and accountability? So this was the idea that was hatched along with Next, which is that the cable news model, especially, is built on division. Right. Right get people very angry about the other side, feed them what they want to hear, and they'll keep coming back for more. That's a very profitable model on the left and on the right. 
we were not interested in doing commentary that stoked division, nor were we interested in advocating for ideology mm -hmm. and uh, almost never advocating around policy, right? That's, that's not my business. That's for other people to decide. But I think that we do have shared values around the things that you mentioned, transparency, accountability, fairness, truth above all, and that we can intentionally bring people of different backgrounds together around those ideas to hopefully get people to say, no matter what I think about that issue, I want to be told the truth. I want people to be treated fairly. I want to know what powerful people and institutions in my community are doing, and hopefully those are shared values. I think that premise is challenged more today than ever through the temptation of authoritarianism and extremism. I think that it is tempted when folks see or say to themselves or convince themselves, well, the other side's doing it, so if we don't, we'll never win again. Mm. I think we've got to keep people rooted in the idea that the truth benefits us all because if we cannot operate from a shared reality, we can't function in any way as a community and we certainly won't be trusting enough to be of service to one another if we can't operate out of a shared reality. Yeah, I agree. I think the other piece that you bring just as a leader is in the philanthropic sector here, you really are known as a difference maker, Kyle. And Word of Thanks, which is part of Next, has made a significant impact by engaging viewers, pool their money like we talked about. What inspired you to start that micro-giving campaign and how do you perceive its impact on the state's nonprofit se sector? I love talking about Word of Thanks because it's the best part of my job. Word of Thanks was born during the lockdown month of the pandemic. I remember. Right. Yeah. So that was early summer of 2020. People were literally stuck in their homes. They were watching a lot of television. Right. But we had this opportunity to channel people's great desire to be of service to their neighbors. And that desire always exists. You know that. Mm -hmm. It's always there. And what people want is a more frictionless way to be of service to others. They just want help. And what's wrong with that? I mean, everything in the world is set up to make things easier for folks. And why don't we try and make giving as easy as it can be for people? And it, it was born out of the idea that nonprofits were struggling. And maybe you could, you know, give one or two of them a shout out every now and then. And just thought, they don't need a shout out. They need funding. Right. Right. And, you know, but what are we going to do as a TV station to give them funding? I mean, yes, we could give them, you know, a thousand dollar grant or something like that. But what if we tried to harness the power of community to ask everybody to do what they can? And if that's five bucks, beautiful. Because if, if, we, if we can get 10,000 people to give five bucks, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, yes, people give five dollars and they give a lot more. They give mm -hmm. a lot more and they give, they give, and they give. And we are coming up uh, this spring on 200 consecutive weeks of Word of Thanks Microgiving. Our pledge to the community was, as long as you want to give, we will continue to find and vet and bring to you trustworthy, impactful nonprofits in our community for you to support. And there's no shortage of them. Mm -hmm. And people continue to give. And they give in communities that I know they have never visited. 
yes. and may never visit. I right. mean, this is, you know, this is building the high school football That's field. That's the one I remember. Branson. I oh, remember that one. I love yep. it. I love that story. You yep. know, a, a small town that's playing football in a cow pasture. Yes. They got to throw the rocks out of it every day. Other teams don't want to play there, so they have a dream of building a football field. How do you do that in a small town without a lot of money? You ask for help. And they ask for help. And I want to say that next viewers raise something like eighty or $90,000 to help them build that field. And the thing is, they do it everywhere. Mm -hmm. They do it from from neighborhoods in the city to the suburbs to northern Colorado to western Colorado. They will do it for communities that do not receive nine news a signal. I mean, whether that's in Colorado Springs or in Mesa County, every corner of the state, people will give to communities that they don't necessarily know because they want to be of service to others, to people they will never meet. And I love that. And I love what that says about our community because yep. what it says about our community is very different than what most TV news tells you about people, right. right? Yeah. No, it's so true. And it feels very Colorado-ish, barn raising. I do I do love that. It's funny that I thought of that same example. I remember when that when that ran, because I've been there before. And I was You've been curious. Everywhere. <laughs> yes, I have. That's part of the job, I guess, when you work at the Betcher Foundation. But I I wonder if there's been another one or two of the projects that you were like, man, Man, that that feels so good. I know that there's 200 examples, yeah. but maybe there's a couple favorites in addition to Branson. I will say we almost always try to pick a new cause every week. There are very few that we return to because we want to be able to spread that generosity Absolutely. around. Uh, one campaign that we have done every year for four years now is buying holiday gifts for every kid in Denver's uh, housing authority housing. Mm. And we worked with the nonprofit Friends of DHA the first year to do that. And the first year that we were there, they were on a first come, first serve basis. When they ran out of gifts, they ran out of gifts. So it was a scramble for the parents to get on the list. And I just said to them, how much do you think you would need to cover the whole list? If I'm not mistaken, next viewers raised about $120,000, wow. covered every kid on the list and allowed them to then buy gifts for kids in section eight housing. And then they came back and they did it the next year. They did it the next so year cool. and they were able to put away enough money along with other fundraising that now it's no longer first come first serve. Mm -hmm. The nonprofit is able to get a gift for a kid every year and we're now there to layer on top of and extend their reach every year. And that's next viewers just saying every kid should have the joy of unwrapping a gift. Mm -hmm. Kid I may never meet, who knows if I'll meet them or I have folks who live in Denver housing who have given to the campaign and written in and said, this has helped my family. We're having a good year this year. I'm in a position to help. So here I am to help one of my neighbors. You can't beat that. You can't so beat awesome. that. And that 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 binds people together in such a meaningful way. And I love that next viewers are able to look all over the state and say, oh, I know that town. I helped out there. Right. Oh, I know that place. You know, oh man, they got hit by a bad flood a couple of years ago, but we chipped in up there in Hayden, you know, when, you know, when plant workers, when meatpacking plant workers were out of work in Morgan County, we helped out those folks there. Yep. And I just want people to feel connected to their neighbors because they are. Right. That's the word that came up for me, connected. Absolutely. You know, um, you have such a public platform through Next and, and this too. And I wanted to talk about social media yeah. um, for a minute because you have quite a following on Twitter and now Thread platform, um, and you probably get the attention of both supporters and trolls. <laughs> and on Twitter, you have more than 176,000 followers, and you are an active social media user who doesn't shy away from communicating with your audience. 
journalists, especially broadcasters, have long been public figures. So I'm thinking about that, how that shows up for you. Certainly there's some advantages, but probably some disadvantages. Talk about how you think about that. I'll just say first off, because I think kind of as a society right now, we're very down on social media mm -hmm. and probably quite rightfully so. As it relates to journalists, the ability for, for social media to provide the public with access to journalists, decision makers, and powerful people is essential. Mm. That has to stay. We have to find a way for that to happen. The days of a journalist getting a report wrong on television and somebody's recourse being calling, writing a letter, or holding a picket sign outside the station are over, and they should be over. We should be called out publicly when we get something wrong or when we're missing context for somebody to say, and hopefully they they do it in good faith and with you know a, a, you know an opening to conversation with did you know this i'm i'm going to guess that you didn't know this what about this context have you thought about talking to this person but to do that publicly i think it's very important to do that publicly yeah. for when the mayor or the governor says here's the thing we did to see on equal footing citizens below saying i don't like that i like that Sure, some of them are trolling, but many of them are offering good faith critiques and they're doing it on level footing with the person who has the microphone, yeah. the camera, the position of power. That is vital. I will also say, I think social media kind of distills both the best and worst about society. I see what it does uh, to me. You know, uh, it makes me, you know, quick to anger, quick to judge. Um, it can make you bubbled off from perspectives mm -hmm. sometimes when it should actually do the opposite. But I worry when people say that social media is doing something bad to society as if social media is not largely just a mirror. Right. You know, and it's, you know, if you don't like what you see in the mirror, you can smash your mirror or you can take stock of what you see in the reflection. And I don't see a lot in social media that I don't also see in society. So I think we can get angry with social media, but we need to address those issues in society. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, you mentioned Twitter uh, to the extent that that whatever that platform is called now <laughs> has become a cesspool of hate and open anti-Semitism and a lack of moderation against threats of violence and things like that. I do think it's incumbent upon journalists to help find new places for us to have those conversations. Right. I'm trying threads in some other places mm -hmm. just to see where can we have a conversation that doesn't devolve into violence or hate. I liked what you said about just equal footing. I think that's how we think about leadership too is that just because you have a title doesn't mean that you, it's an activity. It means that you can show up and have an opinion in a respectful manner. Um, and we can disagree, but we can have constructive conversations too. The other thing that you mentioned um, earlier, I, you know, I really admire about you, Kyle, is just you put yourself out there and it can be risky and it takes courage to ask for feedback. And so I I wonder if there's a story in, in your past where it's like, ah, oh, I got some, that feedback kind of hurt or that was a little bit critical and you stopped in your tracks and you were like, Wow, I'm going to do a course correction on this, or it made you, it changed the way you thought about something? I will say the course corrections as a result of feedback are daily. Mm. They are absolutely daily, and they are so baked into what next is, right. and what we hoped it would be, 
which is the closest thing to a real-time conversation we can have in the format that we have. Mm -hmm. the, the accountability, we talk about that access, that equal footing. I say something on TV, if I get it wrong, I have the gift of 100 people telling me it was wrong, mm. right? <laughs> I, I mean, those people are coming to me offering a gift of, nope, check again, think again. And the ability to do that in real time, not a day from now, not a week from now, but to have that conversation within a 30-minute span to say, you know what? Missed something there. Thank you. That course correction is, absolutely happens on, on a daily basis. And the ability to have that constant stream of feedback where you can take the good faith stuff and really use it to try and become a better person, to try and be of more service to the community is invaluable. And honestly, the bad faith stuff just makes me laugh. So I love to share that too. <laughs> right. Absolutely. As a leader, you have a lot of different hats that you're wearing, right? Certainly one we talked about in your professional context. But I know you mentioned your husband and your father and a Coloradan. And I just um, wonder, how can we be better as a society around civic engagement so that we elevate authentic community leadership? I love this question. <laughs> I love this question. I think there's a lot of ways to answer it, and, and I feel fairly ill-equipped to answer it. But what occurs to me is I think better civic engagement and leadership begins with making people feel like they belong and making everybody feel like they belong. I came here as a transplant and struggled for a long time about, is this a place where not only me, but my my family, would, would we ever be welcome here? Would we ever feel like we belong? Obviously, we've stayed. We do feel like we belong. I hope that that next is a place that makes people feel welcome. Mm -hmm. We hear that from viewers, that you've helped me learn about this state. You haven't made me ashamed that I don't know things or don't know how to pronounce something, or you've taken me to new places and done it in what we hope is a judgment-free way. And I think that that's the way that we're going to help bind people together and get the most out of everyone, is making people feel like they belong. And sometimes that's going to be a challenge on a number of different levels. We watch what Denver's going through now in terms of housing and assisting migrants. Mm -hmm. For the folks who choose to stay in the community, who are pursuing the legal pathways to stay, how fast can we make people feel like they belong? Because that's how they're going to live their best lives and be of the most service to the rest of us, right? And when it comes to people who are you know, struggling against opioid addiction, uh, other substance misuse for people who are living on the streets. How quickly and how best can we make folks feel like they belong and like they're valued and like their contributions will be respected? And I think it can be as difficult and as heavy as those situations. And it can be as simple as, do we welcome newcomers to our neighborhood? That's great. Okay, we're about wrapped up. Um, I've got just a couple more questions for you. And this one, we invest in a lot of young people at the Betcher Foundation with the Betcher Scholarship. And and there's just, just incredible humans here that are up and comers. And so doing what you've done and how you've done it, what advice would you give to young people that are entering the workforce, maybe even as aspiring journalists like yourself or just in general? I think I would encourage young journalists and anybody getting into the workforce to 
figure out how they want to make an impact, how they want to be of service to others, and to not necessarily allow that to be defined by their job title or the expectations that their boss has or the way that it's always been done. If you don't have a role that aligns with your values and the impact that you want to have, find a new role. Find a new role because it, life is too short to spend years of it not being able to live out your values or to be able to impact the community in a positive way. And I think for a long time, journalists especially have been bound by this generation's old idea that we are simply here to observe every bad thing that happens, tell people about it, and then they can sort it out for themselves. What a dereliction of duty. Mm -hmm. Because journalists by nature are not subject matter experts. Every single day when I talk about something on Next, I'm talking to somebody out there who knows way more about it than I do. Right. All right. So hopefully I approach it with the humility to understand that, to welcome their input, but then to also know that perhaps the thing that I can specialize in is connecting people. Mm -hmm. That might be the thing that I can do. But if I was in a job where the expectation was read about a bunch of fires and car crashes and murders and then toss to weather, no, 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 no. And 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 young people shouldn't settle for that either. Mm -hmm. There are great employers. There are great jobs. There are great opportunities out there all over the place. Mm -hmm. Don't settle for being constrained into a job without impact. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to just second that because that's a shared piece of both of our journeys, I think. And I, I go back to the beginning of the our conversation where you were talking about early for you. It started, it was storytelling and service, storytelling and service. And look at what you're doing with that. And I think when you can find something that you care about that's values aligned, then you make your own job. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you're not, if you're being, your soul is being crushed by your current role, um, then find something else. I mean, I, I've had that chance to do it better too. And, and, and it's service too. My parents were incredible and continue to be incredible humans. You know, I've learned so much from them, that model. I mean, they're always doing something at church or with the community. And um, thank goodness for those good examples. And so thank you for being a good example for so many. Well, you're very kind. I, I just try to highlight that there are tons of people out there doing this every day. They are. Whether yep. they're doing the work or whether they're giving the five bucks to help somebody else do the work or whether they're cheering them on from the sidelines, like that is who makes up our neighborhoods and our communities yep. and our state. It's Love not it. the litany of tragedy and the worst stuff that's happened today. No, so true. Okay. You've advanced to the lightning round. Ooh, exciting. Yes. So last four questions. What is your favorite Colorado hobby? This is tough, but I'm going to go with skiing, if only because I learned in my 30s, uh -huh. my wife taught me. Nice. And so I'm I'm more, pr I'm inordinately proud of the fact that I can ski decently. So Very good. Very good. Okay. What is your favorite Colorado landmark? This one's easy. Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Oh, I love that. I, I love the way that nature humbles you and makes you feel small. Yeah. And the, it, no offense to Rocky Mountain National Park, I too like to go look at wildlife that's 90% other humans, uh -huh. but I, <laughs> I like to get away to Black Canyon and I specifically love to hike down to the river uh -huh. and to be there in solitude and to be in just this cathedral of nature that is so powerful yeah, it is. and so vast and you just feel so small and then you could spend two hours hiking out and nearly die. Yeah. I love it and I go back again and again. That's such a pretty part of our state. I love it. Okay, what action hero do you most identify with? 
I hope this doesn't sound bleak, but I'm going to say Braveheart. I'm going to say William Wallace. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, only because only because you should pick your fights based on what's right, not based on what's winnable. Ah. And I also think that you have to remember that not all of the change that you make will you see. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you won't be there. Right. Maybe your back will be turned. Maybe in the case of William Wallace, your head will be separated from your body and it'll happen decades <laughs> later. But but you, you'll you never know the change that you make. Oh, that's and powerful. And it's still worth the fight. It is. It is. Uh, that's that um, building cathedral analogy. You know, sometimes the things that we do that are li- little things today, you have no idea the, what that's going to turn into mm-hmm. later. Love that. Okay. This is fun to ask you, especially just given your background, but what are you currently binging so a show a book a podcast with something that is filling your bucket intellectually or emotionally or just just for funsies too many things to name but one book that i just finished that i adored and was so powerful i finally got around to reading ken huruf's first novel the tie the binds Mm. that he wrote in the 80s and all of his stuff in the plain song series is just so beautiful and it makes me feel a part of colorado and Mm -hmm. feel like i understand colorado but that novel especially, because it it speaks to the fact that any life in service to others or even to a piece of land has value, but everyone should seize the opportunities that they have to be of service to as many people as they want to be. Mm-hmm. And that those opportunities may only come along a couple of times in a lifetime. And while while loyalty and attachment to a hometown or a family member or someone that you've been of service to, that has great value. So too does your personal worth as somebody who could serve more people or serve in different ways. And everybody owes it to themselves to take those opportunities because they only come along once in a while. Love it. Well, thank you, my friend, for your time. I appreciate it. This was a joy. Thank you. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85-plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher. Betcher.